Lost Lomas. It clears up and then slows down again from Aptos to Live Oak. For weather, it is 75 degrees out right now and time for Planet Watch. Hello and welcome to Planet Watch, big solutions to Earth-sized problems. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman. And I'm Joe Jordan. And today on the program, a look at the newest, perhaps most blunt summary of climate change science from the IPCC, from two of the report's authors, commissions by the world's governments throughout the United Nations. Uh, the commission's report says we must act quickly to reduce our carbon and methane output in order to avert some dire consequences of global warming. We'll be talking with Christy Eby. She's a professor of global health and environmental and occupational health sciences at the University of Washington. And later, we'll have an interview with Natalie Mahawald, who is also an author on that report. Um, but first, I thought we would maybe just give you our impressions of the report and see uh, what each of you thinks about it. I'm here with Joe Jordan. Hi, and, and also Tommy Martin, our uh, ever-faithful intern. He's so faithful, he's right here. <laughs> and uh, by the way, we should spell out that acronym, IPCC. It's the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is a uh, UN body. And uh, they've been getting uh, increasingly dire in their predictions of what's going to be going on globally. Uh, and... Um, well, also more activist in uh, recommending what we need to do and fast. So, uh, so what was your impression of the report and the coverage of the report, Joe? Well, it's uh, the report itself is kind of much more telling it like it is than uh, some of the past ones, which were <clears throat> seemed to be some of the earlier ones that were sort of pussyfooting around the issue. It seemed, but now they're. Uh, really ringing the alarm bells. Uh, the, the standard media, I don't think, have been covering it all that much. And, uh, you know, you see a lot more than they were covering previous reports, however. Yeah, yeah. That's Maybe because the time window they're giving us is so short and there's such urgency in the language. And with the hurricane that just happened, that increases the urgency. That's right. It's, it's hard to ignore such things when you are looking at um, the news and watching Hurricane Michael and the devastation wrought there. So um, we have on the line Christy Eby. She is from the University of Washington, and she is one of the report's authors, so we're going to hear from her next. Hi, Christy, Dr. Eby. Thank you for joining us here on Planet Watch. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. Um, for you, why was this report different, if you could characterize? Um, and have you been in, I assume you've been in on other reports. I have been involved in other reports. There's several major differences with this report. One is that the governments under the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change specifically asked for this report, gave the topic and asked the scientific community to assess the literature on the impacts of warming of one and a half and two degrees Celsius above pre-industrial. So there was very high interest from the beginning by the world governments in what the scientific literature has to say. And Joe was speculating that maybe this wasn't covered very much in the news, but I'm looking at the lineup of uh, major media that's covered this. It's pretty broad from Forbes magazine 
to CNN, into Wired, um, you know, to financial reports. It's pretty all over the map. Um, have you been interviewed a lot? More than I have for other reports, that's for sure. The interest is very high. And the headlines are interesting. If you just want to take a quick sample, you know, um, and of course, how science is reported is another topic we could talk about later. But um, Vox, a major new climate report slams the door on wishful thinking. Financial Express, India needs to make a smooth, viable transition from coal. Uh, Forbes, IPCC report reveals urgent need for CEOs to act on climate. So each of them is talking to their own audience about this from different angle. Uh, but certainly there's more urgency there. Why do you think there is so much urgency around these conclusions you've made? This is the first report that works across all what are called the working groups in the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. So it moves from the climate science through the community that projects the risks to the community that looks at what the options are for mitigation and adaptation. So it is comprehensive in taking a look at this question of what are the risks. And this is the first time that it's become clear that the earth could warm by 1.5 degrees C above pre-industrial within a very short period of time between 2030 and 2052. So the immediacy is there. And at the same time, the report lays out a broad range of options for reducing greenhouse gas emissions and for adapting to the consequences that are being projected. Is it possible to get that narrow of a window to say how much, you know, time we have left? That's what I'm always curious about is how do they make, how do you guys make these kinds of um, windows? How do they come about through the scientific process? The climate models have improved significantly over the last couple of decades. And yes, they are now able to provide that narrow a window for when warming of 1.5 C could occur. And what are the what are the biggest dire predictions that your report uh, describes that would happen under 1.5? The key messages around that are number one that people ecosystems, livelihoods, societies are already experiencing impacts at warming of one degree C, which is where we're at right now. And that any additional unit of warming is projected to have significant risks from the climate side, that the increases in extreme weather events, such as heat waves, will increase in frequency, intensity, and duration. There's much greater certainty in the findings, much greater granularity in that. And then on the side of the human and natural systems, we have a lot more research saying, these are the kinds of consequences we could see. For heat waves, people already die in heat waves. They don't need to die in heat waves. But as heat waves increase in frequency and intensity, unless actions are taken, then it's projected a lot more people could die. And the report lays out, in fact, there are a lot of actions. Heat wave early warning systems are effective. Broader deployment of those would be quite effective today and would be even more effective in the future. And there's thousands of other examples. You know, a word that gets thrown out a lot in connection with all this is mitigation. 
Maybe you can just tell uh, our listeners what that means. I mean, we can all go look it up in the dictionary, but, uh, you know, just for the common person out there, what does that mean? It's a central part of what uh, you all are talking about. Thank you for the clarification. Every scientific discipline does develop a bit of its own language. Mitigation just means reducing our greenhouse gas emissions. It means cutting how much emissions come out of our tailpipes and how much comes out of cold fire power plants and how much comes out of deforestation. So looking at a range of options from the individual to the state to the national level on different ways to promote reducing our greenhouse gas emissions. Of course, in California, Governor Brown announced just a few days ago that the state is going to aim to significantly reduce emissions in just a couple of decades. I live in the state of Washington, and the governor here has put on the ballot for November a carbon tax as a way to reduce emissions. I heard that that's actually looking pretty good politically right now. I mean, uh, the chances for getting that passed. I sure hope so. Mm. We have uh, Tommy Martin here. He's our intern, and he's going to be around on the planet presumably longer than we were, statistically longer than we probably will. Um, I wanted you to ask a question before we have to go, because we do have an interview that we pre-recorded with Dr. Mahawald um, that we want to get to, but I want to have uh, one of our younger members of the, the team here talk to you. Hi, Dr. Evie. I was just wondering how the report became so much more urgent from past reports and what's increased the speed of the detriment to our planet. It's a good question, and part of it is the framing of the question. Previous reports assessed what we know about the climate science, what we know about the risks, and did so focusing typically on time periods, what might we see in 2050. This report, the government's turned the question around and said specifically what could we see at warming of 1.5 and 2 degrees Celsius. And that reframing of the question brought into focus how urgent the risks are in the short term and the options that we have for reducing those risks. Well, I hope that lets everyone know that the collectivization problem is even larger than anyone realized. Say, Dr. Abby, just wanted to sneak in a quick thing for you. We got to leave shortly, but um, you're in Seattle, right? And uh, I can probably I, guess, I can probably guess the answer, but uh, tell us how the weather is today up there. It is gorgeous. Mm. Sunny, sunny, clear, and in the low 60s. Could not be nicer. About the same as here. <laughs> good to <Well>. hear. <laughs> At least the weather's good, if not the climate coming. <laughs> Uh, last time I was there, it was so smoky from the British Columbia forest fires, you couldn't see. So we left Seattle early. So I'm glad that's not happening again this, this year as it was last. So we are all feeling it in one way or another. I want to thank you for your work and for joining us here on Planet Watch. Thank you for the interest in the report. Absolutely. Thank you. And we're here at Planet Watch, and we're going now to talk to Dr. Mahawald. She is a scientist who has been studying this as well from Cornell and another one of the main lead authors on this study that basically says uh, by 2030 to 2050, we have to have turned around a major portion of our economy if we're going to get only to 1.5, which is already pretty difficult to look at. And folks out there, you can communicate with us uh, during the next half hour or so. Uh, 
radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. Send us some comments or questions, and we'll get to them at the end of this pre-recorded interview that's coming up right now. Well, I'm excited that Natalie... Mahowald is our guest here on Planet Watch. She's an Irving Porter Church Professor of Engineering at Cornell. She is one of the authors of the IPCC report that just came out, um, and it has some pretty startling assertions in it, startling for those who may not have been following the latest climate science reports, um, but perhaps the most direct in terms of dates and um, the window that appears to be closing. So I'm really excited that you have the time to talk to us. Thank you very much for your time. Thank, Thank you for having me on to talk about this important report. So as has been the case with past reports, um, you've gotten some criticism from two different sides. Some people saying you were being too cautious with your assertions and other people saying you're being alarmist. Some people would say, well, that means we did the right thing. <laughs> um, could you summarize some of the, the differences between this report and we'll get into some of the people who are critiquing it in a moment, but um, can you just sort of talk about how this one's different? Uh, I would say for me, the biggest difference was the date 2040 seems to stand out. Um, and the urgency to remove coal from our portfolio. Talk about some of the other things that you feel were the biggest talking points that you want to make sure the public understands. So this report was different in a, in a couple different ways. The, the first is that this report was actually called for by governments and uh, specifically uh, under the UN FCCC, governments requested the IPCC, the scientists, to take a look at the peer-reviewed literature um, on limiting warming to 1.5 degrees C in comparison to 2 degrees C. So we had a different mandate here. It was also a much broader report. So it wasn't just about the physical climate science or just about the social science aspects, but actually very integrated across all these different disciplines. So it's very special in that way. Now, um, because we're focusing here on 1.5 degrees C global warming, um, that is, is different than prior reports. And it's much more urgent that we have action early in order to limit warming to 1.5 degrees C. Right now, we already have 1.0 degrees C of global warming from human activities. And um, that is, is pretty clear from the scientific evidence. If we keep going the way we're going right now, we're going to pass 1.5 degrees C in 2040. So that, that's really soon. And so therefore, a lot of the urgency comes out of that lower goal, which was given to us by the government. What's the difference, um, if you can characterize in terms of effect on the planet of 1.5 versus 2? It, you know, most people would say that sounds like a puny difference, but uh, apparently it's not. Well, that was one of the things that was specifically looked at as part of this report, and there's new evidence on this. That yes, 0.5 degrees C, that sounds so small, but it's going to have differences, and, and statistically significantly, I mean, that's what we look for as scientists in terms of extreme precipitation events, drought, extreme uh, temperatures, and heat waves. And so this tiny difference is, you know, if you, if you think about 0.5 degrees, that sounds so small, is going to have a huge impact on humans, and humans are going to feel that difference. We're only talking about 22 years away, <laughs> um, and not very many governments move that fast. When you're talking about 
the impacts. We're talking about global food shortages, the inundation of coastal cities, and hi, I live here in Santa Cruz, California, about eight miles from the sea, but the town itself is right next to the ocean. And a refugee crisis, unlike the world has ever seen. Those are three daunting um, perspectives right there. How do you expect the world to get to this 1.5 or, or even less um, in that amount of time, in 22 years, to avoid some of these really negative impacts on not only humanity but on other creatures sharing the world with us? Well, in the report, we uh, uh, take a look at a bunch of different options that would limit the warming to 1.5 degrees C. And um, an, an important point to make is that past emissions alone, um, even though they've caused 1.0 degrees C, they, they will not cause 1.5 degrees C. So it is not too late. It is not impossible. But it is really hard. And we're going to have to do a lot as humans if we decide to limit warming to 1.5 degrees C. And that's really what we were asked to uh, take a look at in terms of the scientific literature is, you know, could it be done? Which the answer is theoretically yes. And what would we, we have to do to, to limit the warming to 1.5 degrees C? And there, there's multiple ways we can do it. Um, and there's a lot of different options out there for moving to sustainable energy, moving to sustainable agriculture, changes in behavior. Um, and to, to a large extent, we, we you know, we have a lot of different options, um, but just using one is not going to get us there. We're, we're going to have to use a lot of the available options. It's going to take a huge amount of work to get us there. Now, on the other hand, I, I have to say that the recent um, technological innovations, for example, about wind or solar, making them much cheaper means that it, it, is, it is possible. Um, we're, we have the momentum in the right direction to make these changes, but it's going to be very hard. You mentioned a reinvention of the global economy. Um, the last time we saw a huge mobilization of many, many world governments was World War II, and there was an immediate threat of takeover of the world by Germany and other dictatorships. So how do you, <laughs> what kind of Manhattan Project do you foresee um, spurring the world to act, um, if not a report like this? You know, is it gonna take enough hurricanes before the world sort of mobilizes on this. So, uh, you know, as, as um, scientists in this report, we, we really aren't trying to assess the political situation or, or take a look at, um, or try to be policy prescriptive. We're not actually supposed to be. Um, we're, we're just supposed to uh, take a look at the situation and see if it's possible. So I have to say, from the report's perspective, we, we don't have that answer. But in, in terms of just talking as a, as a scientist here, just as a person, um, I would say we, we really have to devote quite a bit of resources to um, converting our economy over. But I, I would kind of pose it a little bit differently than, than how you're posing it there. I mean, if we think about what the world looked like 50 years ago compared to today. It, it looked completely different um, in terms of technology and um, how interrelated the economies were across the, across the world. I mean, 50 years, things are going to look very different than today uh, also. And um, a, a, 
hopefully what we will do in the next 50 years, a lot of the decisions that we make will be to mitigate against climate change, that, that this is uh, a really important problem that we need to address in the next 50 years. And, and we have other problems as well. It's not the only problem. But over the next 50 years, it's going to be something that we're going to have to really be thinking about all the time. And um, hopefully we'll be able to reduce emissions so that we limit warming to 1.5 degrees C. But even if we, we succeed in that, we will still have to adapt to 1.5 degrees C. And that's going to mean uh, more sea level rise, more changes in uh, the, the precipitation. So we're going to have to be thinking about climate change in the next 50 years. And it's going to really impact the world that we envision for ourselves in 50 years. We're talking um, as Florida is cleaning up from Hurricane Michael, um, a devastating storm, and, and we're getting almost used to hearing, you know, record-setting winds. Um, there is some extreme weather uh, science starting to emerge that's showing the footprint. We, we interviewed someone last week of extreme weather events, the, the climate change footprint on these bigger storms, more intense storms. Is that something um, the report talks about as a um, kind of a something we'll have to adjust to in the 1.5 degree world? Yes, um, I, the report points out, you know, the increases in extreme precipitation associated with global warming of, of just 1.5 degrees or, or, or a shift in 0.5 degrees, um, and we expect. Uh, that the extreme, the really intense hurricanes will become um, uh, more intense. Um, we might have fewer hurricanes overall, but they should be more intense is one of the things we expect with climate change. Now, of course, we, we can't blame any particular event on climate change because they're, they're just random events. However, what we expect is this increase in intense hurricanes. So if we think about all the hurricanes getting in the news, um, you know, we can't blame this on, on climate change, but this is exactly what scientists are worried about um, uh, coming from, from climate change, it is this type of you know, repeatedly being banged by these very intense hurricanes. So, you know, it's one of those situations where as scientists, we have to be very careful about attributing a particular event or, um, to climate change. But on the other hand, this is, this is exactly what we're worried about. Right, and there's a cost, of course, to cleaning these things up and recovery and rebuilding um, that I don't know is in factored into the reinvention of the global economy that you mentioned. Um, there is the building out of alternative energy in a massive way and converting over, and then there is the constant, you know, apparently we're not going to stop seeing these, they'll get more intense, cost of, you know, repairing and rebuilding all the time from these massive storms that seem to be hitting us more frequently and more intensely. We, yeah. yeah, we as a, a society, as individuals at different levels of government, businesses, we have to take a look at the, the trade-offs here because um, uh, some of the mitigation options w will be expensive um, and yet they will avoid I impacts that will also cost money. So trying to find the right balance is really what we have to do. But I would argue that some of the things we have to do are, are first of all, uh, coming coming down in cost. I mean, the, the cheap cost of solar and wind energy means that it's, it's not so hard to, to shift off of fossil fuels into cheaper energy sources that a lot of businesses are going to make a lot of money off of. Um, 
on the other hand, this this also solves other problems. The fossil fuel sources of energy cause a lot of air quality problems. I mean, basically, they kill people. Um, and so moving to more sustainable energy sources is going to be good for our health and for the environment. The, the same thing about some of the things we recommend in terms of sustainable agriculture. Um, some sustainable agriculture prices, uh, practices um, pull down carbon dioxide from the atmosphere into the soils. And this actually makes the soils more fertile and, and more resilient. And so there, there's a lot of things that we can do that don't just help the climate in the future, but actually help us now and make sense. And they're economically better. So, so some of the things we want to do are just, just make better sense. So I want to go back to uh, Michael Mann's critique of this report. And what he's saying is that um, it's painting too rosy a picture of, of both how much time we have and the um, what we're going to have to cut back on in order to reach the levels you say. And part of that is he said that um, the pre-industrial baseline used to, from for the report shouldn't be based on 19th century data, that um, the industrial revolution was already underway by then. And he says humans had already wor warmed the world by several tenths of a degree. So he's questioning whether, you know, everything was taken into consideration. What's your response to his critique? Critique. Well, if, because this report was called for from the governments, um, it, it was actually that what, what period we're supposed to use for pre-industrial was already defined, um, and it's under, uh, it, it's because it comes from the last set of reports called the Assessment Report 5. We, we basically had to use the definition um, used there because that's what the policymakers who asked us to do the report were using. So we didn't really have very much choice um, what to use there. But I, I would argue that's that's such a science scientist thing to say is we're we're always you know very detail oriented and trying to get exactly the right numbers but um if you use a different set of numbers you're going to come up with the same answer which is we we got to stop emitting carbon dioxide right away as fast as we can um to to avoid the most impact so i i don't think any of these details that that he's mentioning actually changed the answer uh, to any large extent. The, the take-home message is it's happening, it's real, and it's happening way faster than we had thought it would. So we have to act faster. Um, tell me about the coal equation because <laughs> the head of the um, Coal Association, I, I forget the name of the um, national lobbying group, um, unfortunately one of their former lobbyists is now um, the acting director of the EPA. Um, but one of the pieces of the report I read said that um, we would have to reduce coal to like 3% of our energy use if we were to meet any of these targets without overshooting them uh, in terms of the amount of warming. Can you talk about coal? I know it's just one piece of the puzzle. Um, can you talk about that a little bit more about burning that particular fossil fuel? Well, I want to go back and just clarify your comment that it's going faster than we thought before. That, that That's not true. We were just looking at a lower temperature limit than we had before. That This is really quite consistent with what we've said before. But the government's asking us to focus on 1.5 degrees um, means that we have to act more urgently. So it, it's really actually the, the policymakers want us to focus on this lower um, temperature limit was why it's so much more urgent than it was uh, this report it, sounds more urgent than the previous reports but um you know this i think has to do with scientists not 
um, speaking as urgently about the problem as, as perhaps we so, should sometimes. So that it's not really a change. But we, we focus on the, the question of, of coal and fossil fuels. Um, the, the, there, there's two issues here. One is that um, coal is no longer very cheap. Uh, solar and wind are cheaper. Um, so economically, it just doesn't make sense uh, to keep using coal. And I, I mean, coal is a 19th century technology, and it's very dirty. It has just so many bad environmental impacts and, and kills people, which causes and uh, damage, it costs damage. So um, I, I think it, it just makes sense. I, the U.S. to me is the home of technological innovation. So. Um, wh why would we keep with a 19th century technology when we have so many great low-cost energy sources moving into the future that are going to create so many jobs and, and great jobs? I, I, I guess I'm, I don't understand why we're focusing on the past when I think we really should be focusing on the future and the future better energy sources. Well, I mean, there's a lot of answers to that <laughs> in terms of how politics work, but um, in terms of how global warming works uh, as a scientific process, um, we're burning, burning more coal than we should, and we need to cut way back on it. How can we incentivize that to happen? Well, there, there's a lot of different policy tools for doing that, and, and we talk about quite a few of them within the report. Um, each, you know, individual, each city, each region, each nation has to decide what the right answer is for that. Um, I hope that the report is used to uh, make better policies at all different levels and to uh, energize people to really think about what, what kind of future we want to have. So uh, I'm not going to tell you what we should do, but I, I think the report supplies a lot of different options for trying to move forward. One I think I remember reading, maybe it was just in the summary, I didn't um, unfortunately have time to read the full report, but in the summary, I think it said that coal right now is, um, or carbon, sorry, is taxed at something like $8 a ton. And um, I think I read somewhere in the report that eventually it will have to be taxed at $27,000 a ton, if I read that correctly, in order for it to be disincentivized to, to be used. Um, am I reading that wrong, or did I see that in a summary report? report? Um, so, uh, let's see. I, I don't have that um, in front of me, um, so I'm not going to comment on the, the details of the numbers. Um, and that's not the part of the report I worked on. This was a very broad report with you know 91 authors working on it, so I don't have memorized every section of it. But um, carbon taxes is, is one tool for addressing uh, climate change and trying to reduce emissions. And certainly, you know, right now we don't have a carbon tax in the U.S., for example, and so we, we would definitely have to increase the carbon tax if that were the tool that we would decide to try to use. There's, there's many different tools to try to address um, uh, the mitigation um, part of the problem. What was the part of the report you worked on, and, and what are some of the highlights of that part, if you'd like to talk about that? So I was actually in the, the chapter one of the report. I was a lead author on that. And so I was working on framing the, the question of, of what is 1.5 degrees C, you know, how we define it, this whole question of what pre-industrial levels we're supposed to use and all, all those kind of things was in the part of the report um, that I was working on. And then I was also author on the um, uh, summary for policymakers. So there we're trying to um, bring out the parts of the report that we think are the most robust and the most important for the policymakers to, to see. 
And um, I worked a across different parts of, of that um, uh, portion of it. So um, let's see, uh, in, mo in more detail, I, I guess uh, a lot of our work was uh, trying to think about how to, to frame the report. It's, it's the first time the report has thought about climate change in the context of sustainable development. And um, sustainable development is, is one of those buzzwords, and it, it's, it's a very interesting way to think about climate change because it means that we're, we're thinking about it in the context of poverty around the world and how do we reduce poverty levels and how do we make people healthier. And, and so it really broadens the whole perspective on what we uh, are trying to do when we think about climate change. And so... Um, uh, a lot of what uh, my work was, was was doing that framing and, and thinking about those problems. Right. So um, as you look at the impact of this report as opposed to other ones, and this was called for by world governments, we're sitting in a country where the, the president of our nation says that climate change is a hoax. And as I said, there's also someone in the EPA who lobbied for the coal industry and says we should just research clean coal further. Um, is that even something we should be considering from a scientific perspective? Um, is there really such a thing as clean coal? Um, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure if there is such a thing as clean coal. It, um, we really have to be thinking about the costs here. And already, just with straight burning coal, you, you actually want to be using solar or wind instead. So um, it, it, there, there's a lot of room for new businesses to um, keep innovating on new technologies. And, and if um, there's a way to make clean coal that is economically feasible, I, I think that's great. But all the indications are right now that solar or wind are, do much better economically. That, um, and I, I would say also that, y you know, even if the U.S. isn't um, re really trying to lead on this topic, our industries have traditionally led on all, all these um, technological innovations. And this is the way the rest of the world is going to go. So if we want to continue to lead technologically and have the U.S. be the, the innovator, we, we should make sure we're following the trends that the rest of the world is. Um, and that means really cutting our carbon dioxide emissions, not just for our own country and, and for the world, but for our businesses so they can make more money. So we have cut them, I understand, quite a bit, but it's certainly not enough. Um, what What is a comparison with what we have done and what we'll need to do just as a country in order to stay on track for our part of the problem. Yeah, we, we've flattened out maybe um, our CO2, maybe cut a little bit, but um, the whole world needs to be um, carbon neutral by uh, 2040, 2050, and, and Countries that are rich and technologically advanced like the U.S. need to be leading on that. And so we, we really need to be moving much faster than we are right now. Yeah, the economic incentives for the U.S. are, are really strong. China's actually doing a, a pretty good job of trying to convert over um, also. And, and, you know, some of the developing countries will, will simply, they, they call it leapfrogging. They'll, they'll just go straight to the cheap, uh, greener 
uh, fuels already. So this is where the U.S. companies can make a lot of money if we are doing a good job with the solar and the wind. Um, if we're right on the edge, there's a lot of countries are going to put in a lot more um, energy uh, systems. And so, you know, that that's just business waiting for someone to come and, and do. And then they're going to go to the cheapest energy sources, which are solar and wind. I know you can't control how people view these reports. You're, you're just one of the authors. And of course, there is a way of wording things. Um, what I felt after reading this, just as someone who's in communications, is I felt a bit of a daunting uh, emotional blow after I read this because I haven't seen in my lifetime the kind of galvanization you're talking about we need in order to avert the worst, you know, dire consequences. And I I'm a pretty optimistic person, but for the first time I thought, geez, you know, I'm not sure we're going to make it because things take so long. I'm watching governments just work like everything's business as usual and they're slow. They're really slow to approve permitting and there, there are these Byzantine structures of bureaucracies that um, they don't turn on a dime very well, I'm noticing, Lo whether it's local county structures of planning departments and zoning or whether it's our federal government, which exactly seems to be going the opposite direction needed for leading the world, uh, as you said, in energy innovation. So um, I, I'm sorry to say that I felt very crushed by reading this and the, the reporting around it, and I'm worried that it's going to make some people just go, well, let's just party till the end because we're already doomed. I know that wasn't your intent, but um, it is pretty sobering to read the Im impacts that we could be seeing if we go over two degrees warming. Right. Um, I, I guess I, I'm uh, a cynical optimist. Um, so I, I'm also um, uh, very worried about the consequences of global warming. Um, and I think we lay out the, the differences here that, you know, even if you, you only change the global temperatures by 0.5 degrees C, you, you can really see the impacts on people. Um, and that, you know, small change is important. I, I think the thing to realize is that we, we need to keep the global warming change as small as possible. And um, the, the impacts will only be worse um, if, if we allow temperatures to go higher. Um, so it, it is not something where, oops, we're going to miss 1.5, so let's not do anything. Um, mm -hmm. That is not what, what, how we should pose this. It's that, oh, you know, 1.5 is going to be really, really hard to do. Let, let's try to change the course of the, the economy and the carbon emissions and do the best we can to get the lowest temperature we can because that is going to be the uh, lower the impacts on people, lower the impacts on ecosystems. So we, we just want to be as low as possible. And to get the low targets, we need to be changing things in the next 10 years. That That's clear. We can't wait till 2030 or 2040 to, to start to change. That we have to start working as soon as possible. So hopefully that's what people will get out of the report. This is Joe Jordan. Uh, I just came on the call while I've been listening for a bit. Uh, can you all hear me? Yeah. Yeah. Hi. Hi, Joe is our co-host on Planet Watch, just in case you are surprised by him popping in there. Hi, Joe. Glad you managed well, to make it onto the call. I think I sent a message through Bertrand that I was going to be lurking for a while and then maybe jump in. Um, so I don't know if you've talked about uh, what some people think might be the Holy Grail, which could well be completely impractical, but at some point it's going to have to become practical, namely 
what's called negative emissions or taking massive, you know, climate significant quantities of carbon out of the atmosphere by some kind of newfangled technologies other than just, you know, shrubbery and agriculture. Um, you all, I mean, nobody's really an expert on this, but uh, have you all considered that and looked into that at all? That is part of the report, and, um, you, you know, if we delay action, for example, and we still want to limit the warming to 1.5 degrees, we will have to use a lot of this, the, the net negative emissions or um, carbon dioxide removal, with whatever term you want to use. Um, and some of these technologies, I mean, the ones that we have available right now, the bioenergy carbon capture and sequestration, which, you know, we think will probably work. Um, but could have huge environmental impacts or food security impacts. So it, it's not at all clear that it's something we really want to do at the scales that we might need to. Um, but there is a lot of work in trying to develop new technologies for carbon dioxide removal. And um, I think that we need to focus on that uh, more. And so we're at the point now where switching our energy systems over, switching our agricultural systems over has to be done extremely quickly to avert the worst of climate change. But it might not be enough to keep the temperatures below 1.5 or 2 um, even. And we might have to use these carbon dioxide removal systems, especially, you know, after 2040, 2050. And so I, I think we should be doing a lot more research and development in this area. I think that there's people have some really clever ideas about how to get carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and make it into products or sequester it. And um, and there hasn't really been much research funding in this area, and so having more research funding in that area is uh, is something I definitely think we should be focusing on. Joe, thanks for in, inserting that in. And some people would say, you know, you don't want to plan on something that hasn't even been proven to be massively scalable yet. I mean, you don't want to enter that into your figures when you're, or nor do you want to enter clean coal, because these are just things that are, you know, possible scenarios they're not proven to work yet on the scale they need to be so i don't i hope they're not like just calculating them into part of the solution because they are so unproven well they are they are in some of the the scenarios that we use but they're not in all of them but um hmm. it, you just have to start earlier if you um don't want to use the carbon dioxide removal you have to and one rough rule of thumb to keep in mind is that probably getting all this huge amounts of carbon out of the atmosphere is going to take comparable amounts of energy to what it took to get us here in the first place. Uh, it could be solar energy, which is really abundant, but it's still going to take just, you know, comparable to what we've already expended over the last century and a half to overpollute, overload the atmosphere with carbon. I think that... Um that is a really good point, but we do have solar, so a lot of these um, methods would use solar, for example, so that it wouldn't, um, you don't have to burn more, burn more uh, fossil fuels or something. We, we do have new technological innovations, potentially, that could work, but you're absolutely right, it's, it's a huge problem. And speaking of those, um, it seems like the more, you know, people get concerned, the more they come up with geoengineering as a kind of, well, we have to do it because it's a last-ditch effort, and we are at the last ditch. What is um, your concern or um, positive attitude toward the potential for geoengineering? So geoengineering is one of those terms that means different things to different people. So um, 
uh, I'm going to define, I'll be a scientist here, but define it. Carbon dioxide removal, sometimes people refer to as, as geoengineering. And um, I, like I said, I think we should be in, uh, investing heavily in the research in, in that area because that really, it would solve the problem if we could get the carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. Another thing that people talk about is solar radiation modification um, or solar radiation management. And um, so that's like pretending that we have volcanoes all the time and just putting a, a ton of sulfur dioxide, for example, into the stratosphere and cooling the temperatures that way. Um, that I find more problematic because it, it really doesn't solve the problem. It just puts something else in the atmosphere. And... Um, it's going to have a lot of issues because because it doesn't solve the problem. Then the the carbon dioxide will keep increasing, and then now we not only have the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, but we're forcing future generations to continue to do this solar radiation modification. So for thousands of years potentially. So there's some real moral issues involved there. So um, we, we don't talk about that very much in this report, and you'll find um, people have very different views on whether we should consider that or not. Um, I, I prefer to think about um, looking for carbon dioxide removal technologies and going for mitigation as much as possible, and then adapting to, the, to that which is unavoidable um, as much as we can, as opposed to using some of these more, I'd say, speculative and... and to, to me, a little bit morally questionable uh, technologies. I'm glad you brought up the issue of morality because we are conducting a giant experiment on our atmosphere by putting all this carbon into the air. And there is a really big moral component for how we view what we're giving future generations. And I'm just so concerned they're going to look back at this time and said, you could have done it, but why didn't you do it? Because look at where we are having to live now. And I just, that's my... That's what keeps me up at night is the moral component of passing a world down to next generations that is unlivable. And it, it breaks my heart to think my kids and my grandkids and your grandkids are going to be going, why didn't you turn the ship, folks? And we're trying. I know you're trying. You're doing everything you can because you're a scientist. We're doing what we can because we're communicators. But um, sometimes when I hear our president call it a hoax, I just feel like that's such an immoral position to take. Well, I think our, our job as scientists is to, to lay out what we understand about the problem, and, and I think that this report does a good job of that, of really saying, you know, we, we have to act very, very soon if we want to get low climate targets, and so that that's really one of the goals of this report. And in, in a lot of ways, this question of 1.5 versus 2 that we were asked by the governments, I think reaches people more than some of the questions that we as scientists have, have been addressing in previous reports. And so I think we've gotten a lot more publicity um, from this report because of that, because it's, it's something that, that people want to know, and that's why we were asked this question. And this 1.5 degrees was come about through a political process of the Paris Climate Accords. It wasn't you know, a scientific number. It was kind of pulled out of a negotiated <laughs> discussion. Um, of what's exactly. This is, this is what the governments want to know. Mm. And, um, and so I think it is more, you know, re relevant to humans uh, and instead of just what the scientists think we, right. you know, is interesting scientifically. Well, um, in closing, my, I just want to throw a thought out there that often it's, um, you know, the writers and uh, um, people who are in the fiction world of making movies who can 
allow us to imagine what a positive response to something like this would be. So if anyone's listening who's a movie producer, instead of producing a movie about how it all ends badly, how about producing a movie about how we got it together and how we put all of our efforts into this uh you know, averting the worst disaster that anyone has ever faced in the history of mankind or any other creature. So that's my call to let's let's see if how we imagine this fictionally, because sometimes once we imagine it fictionally, we can enact it in actual terms. So that's my hope, is that we can imagine what a Manhattan-type project or a World War II galvanization of governments would, would look like um, so that we can get on with it. Or an Apollo program. <laughs> yeah. Why don't we compete to see who can get the cleanest, greenest, quickest? <laughs> that would be a good idea. Well, Natalie, I want to thank you very much for being here on Planet Watch. We're going to be talking um, with one of your colleagues, E.B., uh, Dr. E.B., um, Chris E.B., coming up um, on Sunday. So we look forward to having these two back-to-back, and perhaps she will uh, fill in some of the other aspects that she worked on. Um, thank you very much for having us and, as you say, for communicating this important scientific report to a broader audience. Thank you so much for being here on Planet Watch. Natalie Mahowald is our guest, and thanks so much for being here. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Good talking with you, Natalie. Thank you. Here we are at Planet Watch. Um, thank you for listening to that interview. Two amazing women scientists today and another last week, uh, Frederica Otto, we interviewed, and she has a quote in the latest New Yorker article about the response to this from our government, and she's from Oxford, and she said, half a degree of additional warming makes a huge difference, especially for people who are marginalized. This can be an existential difference. I think she's talking about islands like the Maldives, where even half of a degree C would make a huge difference. Yeah, a couple comments on these things. Uh, when we're talking, you know, half a degree, one degree, one and a half degrees centigrade, uh, you roughly multiply by two. It's actually 1.8 nine-fifths to get how much of a Fahrenheit uh, temperature increase that is. So one and a half degrees centigrade increase would be almost three. It would be 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit. So, you know, that's kind of what a lot of people are accustomed to hearing. It relates it more. So, however, you might still think, well, hey, 2.73 degrees Fahrenheit, what's that? You know, you get that in a couple hours, but we're talking the whole world. <laughs> so when you're talking a worldwide average temperature change of even half a degree centigrade or, you know, a degree Fahrenheit, that's a lot when you're talking about a global, you know, worldwide average temperature swing that's more or less permanent. <laughs> so you got to keep these things in mind and keep in mind that what separates us from an ice age now <laughs> is only a few degrees of global average temperatures. So. And you can remember back at the Climate Accord uh, discussions, they were fighting whether to put two degrees or one and a half degrees Celsius. And as you're saying, and as uh, all the scientists are saying, that's like saying, Oh, what's one half degree among people? That's just a whole bunch of island nations underwater. I mean, the people who were fighting that two-degree mark and pushed it back to 1.5 were the people whose islands would be gone. And they took quite umbrage at saying it was no big deal. Um, so we're really talking about bad or worse, not um, great at 1.5, right? Is that your understanding? of? The yeah, take? yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I got to recommend a movie that has the the scene that 
most haunts me about this thing where we are getting a clear signal that something pretty horrible is headed our way but so far just looking around you know hey for most of us hey it's a beautiful day or you know no. but this movie Dersu Uzala about a Mongolian it's a story of a Mongolian herder or something who came upon a Russian team of explorers mapping out uh, the far wastes of Arctic Asia and um, they got lost, the Russian guys did, and, and um, Dersu thought they knew what they were doing, and he suddenly realized that, hey, you guys don't know what you're doing. you got to start. <laughs> it's a nice, clear, beautiful, bright day, but he, Dersu realizes that this horrible wind and, you know, minus 70 degrees wind chill is going to happen that night in a couple hours if they don't start chopping grass like crazy and putting a hut together. And they're all working and working and working, and sure enough, that happens, and only because of Dersu Uzala did they survive the night. But who would have thunk, you know, beautiful afternoon. I mean, it was sub-zero temperatures, but it was clear and bright and calm. But this tempest came. And anyway... So we need a, a modern-day... Maybe this report will be the modern-day Dirsu Uzala, who's saying, <laughs> get your hut together. Get your, get your economy straightened out. I would love to uh, live long enough to see our economy completely change into solar and wind and have our transportation converted to electric... And have that world happen fast as if there was an emergency that there really is. I hope we get to live, to watch that piece of it uh, speed up so where we can actually see that progress. I feel like we need a giant cultural shift for something like that to happen. And and the good news is... What would that cultural shift be in the last minute we have? In our consumerist system, it's got to be from the people and start from the bottom and tell people at the top that something has to change. Maybe we don't need a 1% at the top to be the ones running our governments um, because their interests seem to be they're going to imagine themselves barricaded into a gated community while the rest of us don't Uh, do so well. And I don't think they are going to be spared, so maybe they ought to think about this as well. And that was one of the main conclusions of this report, by the way, that the the main people who are sort of at fault here or who are very responsible are the rich, the wealthy. And, uh, you know, living high off the hog at the expense of everybody else. But, hey, there's good news in, in all this is that the future that you just talked about, the renewable energy future, the green future, that's going to be a huge economic windfall for the many, for the, for the non-1%, if we can get that going to where everybody treats everybody and all of nature better. Number one growing uh, job is in solar. Well, that yeah, brings me around so. to please vote because the only way we can get uh, rid of the people who are pretending that none of this is happening is to vote them out of office. So consider your vote as a precious uh, resource as well that you need to